Okay, welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie. This episode is being brought to you through the generous contributions of a couple listeners, Mary Beth and Carol. And thanks to contributions like these, I'm able to keep this project going. I'd also like to welcome our newest members, Brendan, Mary Beth, Brad, David, Chris, Ross, Summer, who got this membership as a gift from her mom, and John, who got this membership as a gift from Julia. I think it's really sweet that people are giving memberships as gifts, by the way. Now, lately I've been on a tear with Arthur and the Members podcast, but I'm going to be switching things up here in a little bit, and I'm going to add in a new episode about St. Patrick in the next day or so. And once we start talking about Anglo-Saxon food and drink, which will be coming really soon in the main podcast, I'll also be putting out members-only podcasts telling you about our attempt to make Anglo-Saxon ale, as well as an ancient roast, which both had, well, varying degrees of success. And there will even be instructions on how you can do it too if you want, so it should be fun. Alright, so last week I left you on a bit of a cliffhanger. We talked about the invasion stories and I alluded to how some people don't believe that there was an invasion, but I really didn't go into a serious analysis of the evidence as it relates to that theory. But worry not, this entire episode is going to consist of nerdy analysis as well as a story about a miracle that doesn't seem particularly miraculous. So let's get into it. To start with, let's have a lightning recap since it's been a week and you might have forgotten the tale. So the Brits were under attack by the Picts following the withdrawal of Rome. So Vortigern hired some Saxons to defend the island. Hengist and Horsa led the German mercenaries to the island. There was a dispute over payment and they ransacked the south of Britain. Then they started raiding and settling in Britannia, and several founding members of Anglo-Saxon houses arrived on the island during this period. Eventually, the Brits started fighting back under the command of Ambrosius Aurelianus, and there was this big battle at Baden Hill where Aurelianus was victorious, and the invasion stopped. And then the civil wars began. That's it. Okay, with that out of the way, I suppose the most important question regarding this discussion is whether or not there is any evidence that supports the legends of Germanic invasions following the withdrawal of Rome. Well, to start with, the Anglo-Saxons of the 5th century were illiterate, so if we want to get the history from the horse's mouth, as it were, all we really have is archaeology. But thankfully, we do have Anglo-Saxon digs in England. We have the Staffordshire Horde, We have Sutton Hoo, not to mention many other less sizable archaeological digs. And based upon that, you might be tempted to just say, yeah, well obviously, in the light of those digs, there had to have been an invasion. And that would make for a pretty short episode, but it isn't as clear as that. Sutton Hoo and the Staffordshire Horde are from after the 5th century, so they really don't tell us if those invasion stories were true. They just tell us that over the course of hundreds of years, there was a cultural shift. On the other hand, we also have found Germanic artifacts in Britain dating from the early 5th century, and that's right within our invasion timeline. But don't get too excited. These finds probably aren't the smoking gun we'd hoped they were. After all, we know that there were raids in the early 5th century, and even earlier, so they could have just been left behind from one of those raids. But finds like these do lend credence to the thought that there were Germanic settlers in England along the Channel Coast and even north of the Humber in the early part of the 5th century. Now, while they support the story, they don't necessarily prove it. Now, if there were settlers, we should see other sorts of archaeological finds. I mean, where we have settlers, we should eventually have dead settlers. You know, the circle of life and all that. So let's talk about graves. Do we have any graves that we can date to our period of invasion? Well, actually, we do. 
and they're clearly Anglo-Saxon. Not only that, but we've seen evidence pointing to an increase in Anglo-Saxon graves over time. For example, we have more Anglo-Saxon graves dated to the 6th century than we have found dated to the 5th. The temptation would be to say that this shows that more Anglo-Saxons were coming over over time. And maybe they were. And if that was the case, this would certainly be support for the theory that the invasion happened. But the increase in graves over time could also mean that the Anglo-Saxons were integrating with the Britons, and their customs were being adopted by the native Britons. And if that's the case, then the increase in graves simply means that we have evidence of cultural bleed. And to make things even a little less certain, we can't even say if there were less 5th century graves than 6th century graves. Not for sure. All we really have are a sampling of what's out there. We haven't dug up every inch of England. Far from it. When you consider the size and breadth of the land involved, we barely even touched it. So we need to keep in mind that when we are looking at archaeological digs, such as graves, luck plays a big part in our understanding of what was going on at the time. For example, if there was a gigantic 5th century cemetery 50 yards from a dig site, we might never know, because we were too busy digging in the wrong spot. So we're just dealing with samples and trying to draw inferences from the little artifacts we're lucky enough to find. Honestly, it would be shocking if we found even 1% of Anglo-Saxon graves in Britain. And beyond the problem of simply finding the graves, we also have the issue with cremation, development of land, sea burials. There are all sorts of ways that these bodies could have been lost. Consequently, what we found might not be representative, and we need to keep that in mind. And it naturally follows that because we're just dealing with samples, it's hard to determine accurate population numbers based upon the digs. So it's really important that as we talk about dig sites, and we will continue to do so as we move forward through this period, that the finds within certain dig sites might lead us to false assumptions. And so we need to keep an open mind to the possibilities that are out there and learn to embrace the uncertainty that surrounds the study of this era. For example, there are areas that are believed to be Anglo-Saxon territory in the late 5th century, such as East Anglia. And in these areas, we have found some Anglo-Saxon burials, which, by the way, is another bit of support for the migration-invasion theory. And interestingly, there aren't a tremendous amount of British archaeological finds in East Anglia dated to the late 5th century. So some might be inclined to think that the British were driven out, and maybe that happened. But like I said, finding graves is rare. We probably have actually found significantly less than 1% of the graves from the late 5th century. So the presence of Anglo-Saxon digs and the lack of British digs might tell us some of the story. But we also might have been looking in the wrong places. So can we look at these digs and honestly say that East Anglia was entirely Saxon in the late 5th century? Even when you take into account Gildas and others, I don't think you can draw that conclusion. You can say that there were some Anglo-Saxons there... But as far as what was going on with the Britons, who knows? We're in a period of history that is filled with uncertainty. And let's make that even a little worse, shall we? I've been going at a lightning pace through history. I know it doesn't seem that way because I've spent almost a year doing this, but we've been going fast and furious. And as a result, you might have a warped sense of time. We all might. I do my best to button up the stories, and in the process, time gets a little bit compressed. It's easy to lose track of time when we're talking about 50-plus years in a single episode, for example. What I'm driving at here is that 50 years back then was just as long as it is today. And right now we're dealing with about 140 years of confusion and darkness. From the withdrawal of Rome to the writings of Gildas. 140 years. 
That's a long time. To put it in perspective, 140 years ago, telephones had not yet been invented, and telegraphs were still being installed throughout the world. 140 years ago, we were still four years away from Queen Victoria being crowned Empress of India. For my American listeners, the U.S. was still licking its wounds following the Civil War, and President Grant had only just restored civil rights to most of the Confederate sympathizers. A lot has changed in 140 years, hasn't it? So we're talking about a very long period of time. And unfortunately, we don't have a lot of information about those 140 years, so we're doing our best here. But despite the issues of timelines and the problems with samples, the fact of the matter is that archaeology, for the most part, supports Bede's contention that there was a migration. And actually, it even supports his contention that the Angles were the northernmost people within occupied territory. We know this because at the dig sites I've been alluding to, we found Anglo-Saxon cremation burials from the period of invasion. The reason why cremation burials are important is that cremation was being abandoned by many German tribes during the period we're talking about, but the Angles were still using it. In fact, there are cremation cemeteries all throughout England, from Yorkshire to Norfolk, just like there are in Denmark and northern Germany. Furthermore, Bede spoke about the desertion of some villages where the migrants came from, and we've seen archaeological evidence that villages were indeed being abandoned during this time frame. For example, the village at Federsenverd, which consisted of about 30 houses, was abandoned at about 450 CE. We can't say for certain that they went to Britain, but it's certainly in line with the stories we've been told about the migration to Britain. So while it's not conclusive, it's supportive of the migration theory. So we have the presence of Anglo-Saxons in Britain during the period of invasion, and we also have evidence of villages being abandoned in their homeland, which points to migration. True, these are just hints. They're just circumstantial. But the important thing is that they support the accounts made by our secondary sources regarding an Anglo-Saxon invasion. So the story is starting to come together. But what about how they got there? What about these stories of mercenary work? Isn't it weird that the Britons would hire mercenaries from the same people who had raided them for years? Well, the use of Germans to defend against the Picts is actually quite plausible. The Britons were Romanized at this time, and as such, they were not the warrior culture we knew back in the BCE and early CE period. Rather, they were largely disarmed and relatively peaceful. So fighting directly against the Irish and the Picts would have been something they would have wanted to avoid, if at all possible. But as I said, they had adopted Roman culture, and as such, they would have been perfectly comfortable hiring one group of barbarian mercenaries to fight another group of barbarians. And actually, this unwillingness to fight, as well as the lack of a militaristic culture, supports the contention raised in our secondary sources that the Saxons considered the Britons to be cowardly and worthless in battle. So the story of how the Anglo-Saxons initially arrived is plausible, and we have evidence of Germanic burials and artifacts from the period of invasion, so it seems like they actually were in Britannia. But why invade? Well, to begin our analysis of why they might want to invade, let's tackle a pretty big problem we have with analyzing this period. Namely, that many people want to think of this either as an invasion, where they killed everyone and took the land, or a settlement, where they arrived peacefully and integrated. But in all likelihood, it wasn't so black and white. As you remember, the stories say that things started out peacefully between the two peoples, and then it got a little more rowdy. So right there, that undercuts the black and white view. And frankly, there's no reason to believe that once the swords were drawn, they stayed drawn. 
All throughout the period of migration, there probably were deals struck for protection in exchange for land or payment, just as some of our sources have indicated. And in addition, there probably were forceful intrusions due to all manner of reasons, such as scarce resources, cultural conflicts, opportunism, political conflicts, you name it. So rather than looking at this either as a settlement or an invasion, it might be easier to look at it as a migration. But why migrate? Well, as we spoke about in earlier episodes, the Saxons were hailed as a seafaring race, and Britannia was renowned for its maritime nature. So it was a natural fit. But just because the land was a good fit doesn't really explain why so many people would abandon their villages and sail to a strange land where they, at the very least, wouldn't have to fight the Picts, and in all likelihood also had to fight the British and possibly each other as well. Why would they take that risk? Well, there's evidence that Europe was dealing with climate change at around this period, and that would have impacted the Angles, Saxons, and Jutes. We've seen evidence of villages being abandoned, and it seems like their territory might have been getting waterlogged in some cases. Though that isn't the only trouble that would have occurred because of a shifting climate. In your mind's eye, when I talk about climate change affecting the tribes, you might be imagining villages being flooded, but it doesn't necessarily have to be that extreme. Just having too much or too little rain can cause a crop to fail. Temperature changes of only a few degrees can alter jet streams, which would cause all manner of havoc on an agricultural society. And hunger is a very powerful motivator. In fact, some scholars have argued that climate change had as much to do with the fall of the Western Empire as did the shaky political and economic system that Romans set up. So the people living on and near the Danish peninsula might have had reason to want to relocate. And the obvious choice would have been to go south. That's what they'd done in the past, after all. We've spoken about several incursions by Germans who had decided they wanted to live in the greener pastures of Roman Gaul. But this time they didn't go south. Why? Well, at around this point in time, there was a substantial growth in Frankish power. And by 486, the Franks pretty much controlled northern Gaul. As a result, the Angles, Saxons, and Jutes were probably left little choice but to try their luck on the sea. I mean, they could have tried to go down into Frankish territory, but they probably would have gotten their butts kicked. And they would have been familiar with the fertility of Britannia and the people who inhabited it, as they had raided the region and possibly worked as mercenaries in the past. And by the way, this growth in Frankish power coincides rather well with the start point of our period of migration. So it's all starting to make sense now, isn't it? Well, let's add a few more sources from outside of Britannia that might help illuminate this for us. First, we have Procopius. Procopius was a Greek writer from the 6th century. He is largely dismissed because some of his claims are obviously false. For example, he talks about magical prophetic birds at one point. But we'd be foolish to completely ignore his account, since there seem to be some grains of truth in there that reflect what our British writers have been telling us. So Procopius wrote about Britain almost as an afterthought. But some of what he had to say was quite interesting, and seems to point to the fact that he had a rather knowledgeable source. To start with, Procopius tells us that on the island there were three races, the Britons, the Angiloi, and the Frisians, all who were ruled under their own kings. The Angiloi were pretty clearly the Angles. But what about the Frisians? Who on earth were these people? Well, let's look at who was inhabiting Frisia at the time. It was the Angles and the Saxons. So all in all, this is starting to make sense. You basically have the Angles, the Saxons, and the Britons all living on the island. And actually, Bede seems to support Procopius's contention here because he says that the Angles and Saxons derived their origin from the Frisians, the Ragini, 
That was a group of people who were involved in Attila's invasion of Gaul in 451. The Danes, the Huns, the old Saxons, and a group who were basically the Franks. Now we could debate all day about how much of this is true, but the important part here is that Bede also points to the Frisians as having ties to the Angles and the Saxons. So Procopius might not be as nutty as we might have assumed. Procopius also says that every year the king of the Franks allowed the Britons to cross the channel and settle in Gaul. Reportedly, he hoped to gain dominion over Britain in the process. Procopius also told of how the king of the Franks sent an embassy to Justinian sometime in the early to mid-6th century, and included with it some angles in support of his claim of overlordship of Britain. Now, Britannia and Gaul were always close, so the settlement and attempts at dominion over the island aren't too surprising in that light. But if we look carefully at what Procopius is telling us, we can learn a little bit about the conditions of Britannia. Buried in this territorial intrigue, he's telling us that both the British and the settling Germans were outgrowing their settlements and returning to the continent. Maybe that's the case, and people were having kids and immigrating to Britain like it was going out of style. Or maybe this is an early example of spin, and the settlement of Britain wasn't as easy as the Germans might have hoped, and that many of the invaders abandoned their attempts to establish a permanent settlement on the island and that many of the natives got tired of fighting the Germans and decided to leg it to Gaul as well. It's possible. And if we leave Procopius for a minute, we might find some further illumination on this matter. You see, we also have a story recorded by Fulda from the 9th century that speaks of how the ancestors of the continental Saxons came from Britain and landed at Cuxhaven. Now this is important because when we look at the rulers mentioned by Fulda during his account of migration... They were the same rulers who would have been in power during the times referred to by Procopius. Did I lose you there? The important takeaway here is that Procopius tells us that there was a migration that went in both directions during our key era, and that the Angles, Saxons, and Jutes were involved in it. And this coincides with our British secondary sources. Furthermore, Fulda wrote about the effects of this two-way migration and might have been referring to a repatriation of Saxons to their homeland following a failed invasion maybe even following Mount Baden. And the rulers he references allow us to track the time he was writing about, and it just happened to coincide with the period our other secondary sources were covering. And we have other sources that support some of Procopius's statements, such as the ties between Britannia and Gaul. For example, according to another source, Childebert I, who ruled in Paris from 511 to 558, reportedly had some power over territories in Britain. It's quite a mess, isn't it? Well, welcome to the Dark Ages. But the thing about this is that when you look at Procopius and others, that clear picture of a brutal and successful invasion starts to get muddied a little bit, doesn't it? But it still looks like there was a migration regardless. Now, like I said, Procopius also wrote about magical prophetic birds, so we have to take his accounts with a grain of salt. But Britain and Gaul were close. We know that the Britons relocated to the Amorican Peninsula. We know that the Angles were in Britain. And we have stories from other regions that seem to coincide with Procopius's accounts. So what he says does deserve some level of attention. At the very least, it gives the impression that migration back and forth across the Channel might have happened which might support Gildas' account of the conflicts in Britannia and the outcome of the battle at Mount Baden. So it's starting to look like there was a migration, and that it was followed by conflict between the two people that waxed and waned for decades, just like Gildas and our other sources claimed. 
So what else do we know about what was going on in Britannia during this period of migration? Well, Riothamus, who was apparently a British king from the 460s, was mentioned by Jordanes as a man to be reckoned with. But here's the thing. He was a man to be reckoned with in Gaul. Apparently he fought the Visigoths, but I guess he didn't do too well. Now, this account, much like Procopius and Fulda, helps us keep something in mind. That even though Rome had pulled out from Britannia, the island wasn't isolated. And throughout all of this, Britain and Gaul remained close. Now, interestingly, Riothamus might have been a Latinized version of a Brythonic word. The Brythonic word for overking or supreme king. And so some have argued that Riothamus wasn't a name at all, but rather a title. And this character was actually Ambrosius Aurelianus. And if that's the case, it's further support that Arthur might have been Ambrosius, since Arthur was said to have crossed the channel and gone to war as well. And that's a neat little thought, isn't it? But it's one of those things that we'll never be sure of. In fact, I should point out that Riothamus might not have even been a British king at all. He might have been a king in Brittany. But it wouldn't be too hard to imagine that Ambrosius and Riothamus were the same person. Ambrosius was a war leader in Britain. He would have commanded a great deal of power and respect, especially following Baden Hill. And from Gildas' account, he was strong enough to establish a number of royal houses. By the time Gildas was writing, several of Ambrosius' descendants were ruling as kings, and at least two of the kings that Gildas mentioned do later appear in the pedigree of ancient royal Welsh houses. So it seems like this Ambrosius guy was quite a heavyweight. So maybe that was Riothamus. And as an aside, during Gildas' account of the sins of the rulers of Wales and Cornwall, Gildas has accidentally told us something else about the cultural changes occurring in Britain. Namely, that monarchies were already established before he started writing. So sometime between the early 5th century and the mid-6th century, kings seized power. But Gildas also has some curious silences in his account. And since he's the closest thing we have to a primary source, even though he was writing 140 years after the withdrawal of Rome, we probably should discuss those silences. First, since we're on the topic of Arthur, you'll probably notice that Gildas says precisely nothing about King Arthur. Isn't that strange? There are stacks of books about King Arthur, and many of them begin with the premise that he definitely existed, and then try and figure out who he was, when he lived, and where he was from. But Gildas doesn't say anything about this legendary man who united Britannia and defeated her enemies. And yet Gildas was apparently living in the period of peace that immediately followed Arthur's most famous battle. Surely he would have had something to say about the once and future king. But instead he spends his time complaining about various Welsh kings and talking about this Ambrosius guy. That's weird, isn't it? Another thing you might notice if you're reading him is that he refers to deserted towns, which archaeology supports, but fails to mention Germanic settlements. That's also kind of strange, right? And he lambasted five kings of Wales and Cornwall, but made no mention of any kings in what would become England. Nothing whatsoever. Surely they had kings as well. Now, it would be tempting to draw conclusions from that silence, such as the entire region of England was held by Germanic settlers, and so Gildas just didn't know what was going on. Or maybe that his lack of discussion of the settlements meant that the Saxons had entirely pulled out by the time Gildas was writing. But keep in mind, he also fails to make mention of the kingdom of Poes, which is squarely in Wales and certainly existed at the time. So as we're reading Gildas, we should remember that ultimately Gildas wasn't a historian. 
He was a religious zealot. So honestly, we shouldn't read too much into his silences. Now as for the particulars of the invasion, it actually is quite hard to say what happened. I think it's fair to say that there was a migration, and that it got pretty hairy from time to time for both sides. But was there a Hengist and Horsa? I don't know. I mean, the Germanic line of Kentish kings traced their line to Oisk, not Hengist or Aisk. I mean, sure, the Chronicle uses Oisk and Aisk interchangeably sometimes, but when you have Hengist as the most famous leader in your line, other than Woden, why wouldn't you have the Kentish royal name be Hengistengas rather than Oiskengas? It just doesn't make sense to me. But ultimately, while the Chronicle is our best guess of what was going on and who was involved at the time, it's actually terribly unreliable for this period, both in events and dates. Oftentimes, the dates seem to be arranged simply as placeholders, and then things are added in by the writers in an approximation of their chronological order. And the Chronicle also tends to arrange things in four-year intervals, which suggests that dates, and maybe also events, might have been massaged to fit a theme that the writers were developing. And you have all manner of issues with continuity when you're looking carefully at the sources. For example, Aethelweird describes Chinneric as the son of Churdich, whereas the West Saxon genealogy says that Chinneric was the grandson of Churdich and the son of Creoda. When sources can't even agree on who fathered whom regarding the founding members of the House of Wessex, it really does start to raise some questions. Though to be fair, for the period in question, the Anglo-Saxons were illiterate, so stories were probably originally told in verse. In that situation, chances are that there were going to be errors made over time, and that things ended up getting misremembered, forgotten, or outright changed by the storytellers. So while I think there was a migration of Anglo-Saxons during the period that Gildas and Bede were writing about, and I think that Bede is generally pretty reliable, for example, he wrote about the connection between the Isle of Wight and Kent, and we found archaeological digs that support him on that, well, despite all that, I'm not certain that he was right about the vanguard of the Anglo-Saxon migration involving a descendant of Woden named Hengist. Chalk it up to an abundance of caution. Now, last week, I made mention that I was pretty sure that Bede was closer to the date of migration than Nennius was. But I didn't get into why. Well, the reason I'm pretty sure about it is tied up in Christianity, heresy, and a particular saint that visited Britannia. So, let's talk about the effects of Christianity in this post-Roman Britain, since there still were Christians on the island at this point. I'm not sure if I mentioned this yet, but this is one of the more interesting shifts in the Western world. Generally, the pagan world was very much one of, eh, whatever, when it came to gods and religion. I'm speaking in broad strokes here, of course, but in general, you didn't see too many conflicts on methods of worship. Maybe you saw conflicts between followers of different gods, but internal conflicts weren't front and center. Christianity, on the other hand, was very much concerned from an early date with being uniform. Everyone had to believe the same thing and behave the same way. Again, I'm talking in broad strokes here, and there are always exceptions. But the rise of Christianity in the West brought with it an obsession with religious uniformity, which is pretty interesting. And that brings us to Pelagianism. So Pelagianism was a heresy, and the Britons loved it. You might remember a certain Briton who went to the Mediterranean prior to the withdrawal of Rome. He was supposed to study law, but instead became a monk. Remember that guy? Pelagius? Well, he had some interesting thoughts on religion, and actually, some of those thoughts seem to have hints at ancient British beliefs. But the biggest problem was that Pelagius said that you could attain moral perfection without divine grace. 
Doing it on your own, in fact, was sort of the purpose of free will. Well, Augustine of Hippo, who will later be known as St. Augustine, don't confuse this guy with Augustine of Canterbury, they were two different people. Well, Augustine of Hippo thought this was madness. That's because Augustine was all about original sin. Original sin is the concept that we are all essentially born guilty, thanks to Eve giving Adam a snack and then having some dessert, if you know what I mean. Basically, Augustine thought that whole business was gross, or maybe he thought that just apples were gross, and Pelagius didn't. And thus, Augustine thought Pelagius was gross. Okay, okay, that isn't entirely accurate. Pelagius wasn't saying, hey, what happened there was great, pass the apples. He just didn't think that the events created a stain on all of humanity. Rather, they were just a cautionary tale on the impact of bad decisions, and that we can become enlightened by making good decisions. Basically, we aren't the victims of sin, rather we're born free and we can only become condemned by doing something overtly wicked. And here's the thing. People in Britain seem to prefer self-improvement over sitting around feeling guilty for something they had nothing to do with. So Pelagianism was flourishing in Britain. Incidentally, the Britons were just ahead of their time. Many modern theists have similar views to the Pelagians on the exercise of free will. But that wasn't the prevailing viewpoint at the time. And the Pope started to grow concerned. In Britain, there were people who weren't feeling guilty about ancient apples enjoyed in the garden, if you know what I mean. And this was just not acceptable. So St. Germanus, though he was just Germanus at the time, germ to his friends, was dispatched to Britain to become Captain Killjoy and get some of that good old-fashioned guilt back in the people. And in Britain, Pelagian worship at this point was reportedly being led by some guy named Agricola, who was the son of a Pelagian bishop named Severianus. According to Bede, it was the Orthodox Britons that sought the assistance from Gaul, which led to the arrival of Germanus, once again reinforcing the close ties between Britain and Gaul. So it's approximately 429, and Germanus arrives in Britain. It's been nearly 20 years since Rome has withdrawn from Britannia, but Christianity was still strong on the island, and it was still Romano-British since we're not getting records of hordes of hairy, unwashed men talking about Thor, unlike reports from theaters a few weeks ago. And that right there undercuts Nennius' date for the arrival of the Saxons. If Nennius was right, we should be hearing at least a little bit about the Saxons, and later on in the story, we definitely should be hearing about the Saxons, but we're not. Anyway, on this trip to Britain, Germanus was joined by Bishop Lupus. Fans of House might be wondering if Bishop Sarcoidosis came along. I think he was busy. So after they arrived, there was this meeting between the Pope's envoy and the local heretical leaders. And it was arranged in a sort of Scopes monkey trial fashion. Apparently, the Pelagian leaders were joined by a multitude of enthusiastic British supporters when they arrived at the debate. And according to the record, Germanus won this contest, despite lacking any popular support to begin with. Though don't forget that this record isn't exactly unbiased, and it also includes Germanus restoring sight to a young blind girl for good measure. So taking this with a grain of salt might be a good idea. Following the debate, Germanus visited the shrine of St. Alban. You might recall that St. Albans used to be known as Verulamium, and it was the home to Alban, the first Christian martyr in Britain. Obviously, this was a significant holy site in Britain for quite some time, so it made sense for Germanus to go and travel there and gain the support of the people. Interestingly, Germanus was hurt during this visit, but he didn't or couldn't heal himself. So he stayed there for a little bit, and during that period, you have this odd moment where buildings on either side of him burned to the ground, and his building remained untouched. Get this. 
As the flames were approaching, the people tried to get Germanus to flee, but Germanus wasn't having any of it. He wanted to stay in bed. Even as the flames reached the building next to him, he still wouldn't move. So it was looking like this bishop, this holy man sent personally by the Pope, was going to burn to death in his home. And the building next to his was consumed by the fire. And then the flames just jumped right across to his house and lit the other house on fire, completely avoiding Germanus's house. He was left untouched. But the fires didn't stop. They kept on burning down everything. All they did was pass over the top of where he was at. Constantius of Leon writes of this as a miracle. I'm not sure if the neighbors would agree. Now, if we're going to take this at face value, it seems that what Constantius of Leon is telling us is that God will cure blindness and manipulate the wind in order to prevent a single building from burning, but healing a saint's foot, motivating him to get the hell out of bed, or, oh, I don't know, maybe just putting out the fires entirely, well, that might have just been a little bit too much to ask. But here's where things get interesting and my sarcasm drops a little. You see, shortly following the Holy Spirit acting as a somewhat lazy firefighter, Germanus apparently led the Romano-British in a battle against the invading Picts. Tradition holds that this happened in North Wales. Now this isn't as strange as it might seem. In other post-Roman regions, we have accounts of warrior bishops leading armies, and frankly, they were often the only source of military power in the area. So it's entirely possible that Germanus did suit up and lead some light troops against the invading warbands. That being said, if this happened, it was probably closer to a gang fight than a full-scale battle. The days of the gigantic Mons Graupius-style engagements were over. But there are weird aspects to this account. Germanus is said to have baptized his army. Why? Do Pelagians need to be rebaptized? That seems a little extreme. Were they pagans? If so, where were they from? Most of Britain at this point was Christian. And why did Germanus need to do the baptizing rather than having the local British bishops handle it? It's all a little strange, isn't it? And of course, our source in this isn't Germanus, but rather it's a secondary source, Constantius of Leon, who wasn't a witness and was writing decades after the event had passed. So yeah, there's some strange stuff in there, but let's assume that Germanus did fight the barbarians with his newly baptized army. Well, apparently the battle was won, booty was acquired, and the Britons were developing a man-crush on this Gallic bishop. And with that, Germanus left Britain, confident that Pelagianism was crushed. And while the Britons were impressed, it seems like they weren't too crazy about feeling guilty all the time. I say that because it seems that there was a resurgence in the 440s, and either Germanus or another bishop had to return to Britain to once again deal with Pelagianism. This was probably a source of angst for the church leaders, but it's a godsend to us. Because here we have something approaching proof that Britain was not yet Anglo-Saxon. Stenton puts the date of the second trip to deal with heresy at 447 but we know that it was at least somewhere in the 440s. Interestingly, this is consistent with Bede's account stating that Hengist and Horsa didn't show up until 449. And once again, with that second trip, we're not getting accounts of hordes of hairy men talking about Thor. So that's why I say that Bede's date was probably closer to the truth than Nennius's. So there you go. We have a story of Anglo-Saxon migration that's told to us by a prophet, Gildas, but it's supported by archaeology as well as later writers, even though those writers lacked direct knowledge and sometimes included odd side notes that we know were not accurate, such as magical birds. 
I mean, this is hardly unimpeachable proof, but in general, I suspect that there was a period of migration, despite our shady sources. Are you confused? Well, like I said, welcome to the Dark Ages. Okay, as always, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can also join us over at Facebook. That's facebook.com slash britishhistory. And you can also join us over at the forums. You can get to the forums by going to our website, thebritishhistorypodcast.com, and clicking the forum button. I hope to see you over there. Thanks for listening. <laughs>